Howard. I tell you, um, I don't know how many of y'all know it, but one of the reasons I can teach is because of all that Howard does, and I was reminded of this again uh, this week. He attends all the meetings that the teachers are supposed to attend because they always have meetings up here. Wade's so good at keeping up with everybody and everything, and, and my time doesn't allow me to go to many of those meetings, but Howard's always there for us, a ready presence, and it's very much appreciated. Y'all need to, to be sure and, and thank Howard uh, for all he does. Um, okay, a couple more notes, and then we'll do class. Uh, let's see. Rachel, my daughter, are you here? Where is she? She left. She's an element. Okay. So Rachel and I are sitting together during church. Now, I don't know how many of y'all were in church this morning, but the guy says, if you've been a Christian over four years, stand up. So we stand up. The guy says, if you know a passage of Scripture... For every year you've been a Christian, keep standing. I'm going to call you up on stage, otherwise sit down. So the, the congregation in mass sits down. Now we're sitting right up toward the front on the second row. I'm sitting there thinking, I could do this. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, I am not about to stand up in front of this entire church, sitting right here on the front row, and... I look at my daughter Rachel, and she's sitting down. So I said, all right, I'm sitting down. I'm going to do the humility thing. So I sit down. <clears throat> so then Rachel looks at me, and she says, why are you sitting down? I looked at her, and I said, well, I'm not about to stand up and like on the second row and let everybody go, oh, look at Lanier. He's pretty cocky. And uh, she, I said, why are you sitting down? She said, I'm the same way. What if kids see me? And I said, you know, I don't think we're supposed to be ashamed of this. And she said, well, let's just have our own little club. So I didn't know what she was talking about until about uh, six minutes later, she hands me her sermon notes. And she has written the entire first chapter of James out and then had about four lines left over. So she added Ephesians 4.29 at the end. That's not bad for a wonderful 15-year-old girl. So I wrote out the book of Philippians and handed it back to her. <laughs> and I also thought, you know, there are a bunch of people in my class that have great depth. And while I loved that sermon and I found it challenging and exhorting and I'm redoubling my efforts in my personal uh, study time and my family study time and I applaud everything that gentleman said, I thought, you know, he should come to our class because we got a bunch of people in here who are sinking their roots down deep in the Word of God. And, and it's a real pleasure to be in a class with you folks who have that heart. And I applaud each one of you who are here this morning. If you need a lesson for Jude, raise your hand. Uh, Marcus has got some and he'll come down and hand them out. Let me talk to you about scheduling while he's doing that. Marcus down here at the front. Kay, Mickey, and, and Perry have their hands up. Um, <clears throat> Let me talk to you a little bit about scheduling. Uh, I apologize that, that I'm not always here. This truly is my first love outside of my family. Um, uh, I sacrifice uh, 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 work gladly and a number of other things to be here to teach. But periodically I cannot. Um, over the next two weeks, uh, uh, we are going to be gone, the next two Sundays. Um, and so what I have got is Scott Ryling, who is on staff here. Uh, uh, I think most of you, if not all of you, know Scott. 
a, a wonderful teacher, a wonderful guy, and a wonderful scholar. Um, um, I have uh, asked Scott to do the hardest thing in this class, something too hard for me to ask Charles or Edward to do. I've asked Scott to teach the first two weeks of Revelation, and, uh, uh, which keeps me out of trouble teaching it because he's on staff. So he gets to teach it, and uh, um, it's going to be a wonderful class. Uh, uh, I look forward to hearing it because I'll get the CDs and getting the lessons. He's already been working on it. We've had lunch over it, and, and I'm excited about what he's teaching. And, and in all candor, it sounds to me like he had in mind to teach the very same lessons uh, that, that I had intended to teach. I will then follow up. We'll have two more Sundays for the year. I'll follow up with Sunday, December 11th, I guess, is the next one. Sunday, December 11th, I'm going to give sort of a little sweeping end of Revelation. We're going to look at Revelation in a little bit of a different fashion than you've probably looked at it before, but one that's very important from a biblically literate perspective. So that'll be December 11th. And then December 18th, I think, is our last Sunday to meet this year, if I understand the church scheduling right. Last Sunday for Sunday school. We've got church services, of course. But we don't have Sunday school on Christmas Day. Um, so let me tell you what Howard suggested that I think is, uh, is a good way to end this year and end the biblical literacy class. Howard said that a number of people who've been here for the three years we've gone from Genesis to Revelation have had questions, and I have not been very good at addressing them because I just stand up here and pretend I don't see your hand waving. So if you've got questions on anything from Genesis to Revelation and you'll get them to Howard ahead of time so that someone doesn't just hit me with explain Amos 3.14 and I'm standing up here, well, that's an important passage. It's in the Old Testament. Um, you know, give me a shot at looking at them ahead of time. If you show up December 11th and you've got your questions and you didn't bring them ahead of time, uh, I'll look at them, and if I have anything to say on them, I'll answer them anyway. But if you've got questions that, that have been nagging you or bothering you or questions you want answered, if you'll write them down, we'll try and cover as many as we can on that Sunday. Then we hit into January, and with January, we're going into church history literacy. I am so excited about this. I, I cannot tell you how excited I am. Um, so uh, uh, I look forward to it. It's going to be um, a wonderful opportunity for us to learn some incredibly important things. So please, 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 if you're interested and you think this is where God wants you, come. If this is not where God wants you, go wherever you need to be for what nourishment you need. But give it a try if you're interested. Also, be sure and let other people know about it because it may be something that people who normally don't go to Sunday school might be interested in. I'm not trying to steal bricks from, from other buildings. I'm not trying to drain other Sunday school classes. But some people aren't going to Sunday school at all. This may be something that interests them. So if so, spread it around. Um, bam, bam, bam. Pray for the church history teaching also. It's going to be fun and challenging. Last comment. I noticed coming in, Lloyd and Betsy Kennedy sitting back there with mom on the second row to the back. Um, Y'all don't have to stand up, but at least hold your hand up so people will know who you are. That's Lloyd and Betsy Kennedy next to my mom. They're very special people to me. When I moved to Houston in 1984, fresh out of law school, the very first day I was, uh, Sunday I was here, I went to a church in the Galleria area. It's called the, the Bering Drive Church of Christ. It's where Edward Fudge goes, where I met him. And at that church, 
uh, I went Sunday morning, and uh, um, I was a 23-year-old kid just out of law school. And uh, that Sunday afternoon, I got a phone call from Lloyd Kennedy, who was an elder at that church. And he said, uh, you know, it was really nice having you. Hope you'll come back tonight. And I got involved in that church, taught, in fact, their Sunday school class for a number of years, but taught at that church. It was a wonderful church, and it's a real blessing and honor uh, that they would come and visit this morning. Um, so uh, if you all get a chance to welcome them, they are two wonderful Christian people and pretty good bridge players, too. Um, as mom would say, sometimes that's the same thing. Um, okay, today, oh, we're not even on the right screen, are we? Let's go to the biblical literacy. Now we're ready for class. This is show and tell day. I've brought books. I've got uh, a Bible. You all know what that is. Hopefully you've got one of those. But I've got some other books because we're going to talk about some fun things and I want to start getting you jazzed for church history. Okay? So let's start with Hey Jude. A tribute to, I guess, Paul McCartney is in concert Saturday night. Um, uh, hey Jude. Who was Jude? Well, I searched long and hard and I found a picture. That's him. Now, Jude, typically in art, if you go back and look at medieval Christian art and, and Catholic church art, you're typically going to see a medallion around his neck. The medallion is supposed to be a medallion uh, uh, showing Jesus because Jude is related to Jesus. That is not a staff. That's probably an oar because Judas, I mean, Jude was de, uh, considered to be a fisherman. And so typically he has an oar with him. Now, you might also know Jude or St. Jude because of the St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. Heard of that? Why does Danny Thomas have the St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital? Because Jude is the patron saint of lost causes. And so that's a hospital built around finding cures for diseases that there are no known cures to. Why would Jude be considered a patron saint for lost causes? Well, it comes down to his name, Jude. It's a very common name in the New Testament time period. It's a um, kind of a shortened name. Rebecca this week walked around the house proudly declaring that she has seven nicknames. And it upsets Sarah no end because Sarah only has five. So Sarah has asked us to give her two more so she can have as many as her sister. It's really nice that we don't have a competitive household. <clears throat> I suggested a couple. Sarah did not like them. I said, how am I going to give you nicknames if you won't take the nicknames? She says, I want good ones. And I said, well, I've got Sarasota, like Sarasota, Florida. I've got uh, Sarita, you know, I've got, and, and so I go through, she's not into any of them. Jude was a nick or a shortened version of a name, okay? It's not like Rebecca might be Becca, okay? It, it, it's in that sense, a shorter version. In Hebrew, the name was Judah. Same name. In Greek, the name was Judas. Like Judas Iscariot, Okay? So in Catholic church tradition, for the first few hundred years, nobody really prays to Jude because they'd be calling him Judas. And nobody wanted to pray to Judas. So he's sort of the lost saint. And when the Catholic church gets really into the saint system, 
and we'll learn this in church history. And they start realizing, you know, there really haven't been any good feast days or celebrations for Jude because he was Judas. And nobody ever wanted to get confused. That's when Jude became the patron saint of lost causes because he was a lost name. And we'll get into this more in church history, but the bottom line is we need to know from biblical literacy, Jude, a shortened name. In Hebrew, his name was Judah. In Greek, his name was Judas. So now I ask you, who is Jude that's writing this book? Some scholars, in fact, most scholars seem to believe he was the brother of Jesus. Matthew 13, 55, for example, is a passage. Um, Let's see, Matthew 13, 55, that says, this is a, where Jesus has been preaching and he's a prophet without honor in his, own country, in his own country, his own area. They say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? You know, didn't, isn't this the guy that used to play in the sand when he was a little boy? We know him. This can't be the Son of God. And so Judas is one of Jesus' brothers. All right? Most people recognize this book as being written by Jude, Judas, the brother of Jesus. Some say, no, it was Judas, also called Thaddeus, the apostle. Now, there are two Judas apostles. One's Judas Iscariot. We're going to call him Bad Judas. The other is Judas Thaddeus. We'll call him Good Judas. And some people believe that this book was written by Judas, the good apostle. Um, lesser scholars, I mean, not lesser scholars, there aren't as many people who ascribe to that view. But it gets kind of distorted through Catholic church history because there was a period of Catholic scholars that didn't want to say Jesus had brothers. And so the brother must be a cousin who was the apostle and it all gets kind of watered down. We probably won't even get into that in church history literacy. Suffice it to say for us, some people consider it was the apostle Judas who wrote this, this letter. Um, I don't. Unknown Judas. Maybe it's just some Judas we don't know. Uh -uh. I go ahead and say it's the brother of Jesus. Why? Here are the reasons. First of all, um, in... The book itself in Jude, which is right before Revelation now, if you're trying to find it. Jude chapter 1, and it's only one chapter, so you don't have to really put the one there. You can just put the verse down. It starts out, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Well, we know that James was also a brother of Jesus. We also know that James, as a brother of Jesus, would never call himself a brother of Jesus. Uh, never ask for that special attention. Never ask for that special accolade that would come from being that. He always made it a point of saying, I am a servant of Jesus, because he never wanted to be considered the equal, I expect. Um, Jude does the same thing. Jude is a brother of James and a servant of Jesus Christ, because as those boys came to faith, they had a much different view of their brother, and uh, uh, certainly as a resurrected uh, king. So uh, he starts out and he says he's the brother of James. He speaks as if he's not an apostle. In verse 17 of the book, he'll tell the people to remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold, which makes it sound like he's not one of the apostles or he wouldn't be saying it that way. 
So this isn't Jude, Judas the apostle. This is not some unknown Judas. What we've got is the brother of James. And there's interesting history about this. Around 100 AD, and you'll find out all about this in church history literacy, under the reign of Domitian, who was a, um, a Roman emperor, there was persecution of the church and also some, some persecution of the Jews too, but certainly persecution of the church. And a number of grandchildren, grandchildren of Jews, were pointed out for persecution, saying they're grandchildren of Jude, he was the brother of Jesus, so they've got to be related back to David, just like Jesus was, the crucified guy. And so we have this within history itself unfolding in about 100 A.D., somewhere in that range, where the grandchildren um, are accused of being related to Christ because they're grandchildren of Jude. It's, it's uh, actually kind of interesting. All right, next point, new subject. Why is this book in the Bible? Why, when we open it up, who decided it goes in there? Well, the church, in essence, and we'll look at the development of Scripture and what went in and what didn't in church history literacy as we continue to promo next year. But in, before we get there, let's focus on this book. In the very earliest canons of Scripture, we find it listed as an appropriate part of Scripture. There's the Muratorian canon which most scholars say is one of the earliest that we've got. We don't have the whole canon, but it was around 170 A.D., and it certainly lists Jude in it. You'll find Clement of uh, Rome referencing this book. You'll find Clement of Alexandria referencing this book. Um, at some point, a couple hundred years A.D., some folks disputed and said Jude doesn't belong in the Bible. Now, the reason they disputed it is not because it was written by who knows who? The early church recognized that it was written by the brother of Jesus. But the reason it was in dispute is because in the letter itself, it quotes some material that's outside the Bible. And so early church fathers, some of them thought this shouldn't be in the Bible because it's quoting things outside the Bible. Those fathers, uh, through the Holy Spirit's work, didn't win uh, as they, they put together the canon because the Holy Spirit at work recognized and illuminated enough people that Paul quoted outside the Bible, uh, uh, that the Old Testament quotes outside the Bible extensively. Um, uh, the, the Bible itself, God's not limited in the way He teaches His people by speaking only from Himself. His people would quote what was useful. So um, um, that's why it was disputed. Ultimately, it goes in there. Uh, the book starts out, let's look at the text. The book starts out to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Now I ask you this question. If that's who the addressee is, who is this book to? Look at it. It's to those who've been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Who are they? Well, technically it's us. I mean... Have you been called? Yeah. In fact, if you're part of the church, church in Greek is ekklesia. Ek means out of. It, klesia is, comes from kaleo, which means called. So the church itself, by definition, are people who've been called out. To those who've been called, who are loved by God the Father. You've been loved by God the Father? Yeah, me too. Um, kept by Jesus Christ. 
How many of you are keeping yourselves holy? Me neither. Jesus Christ is my ticket into heaven. Okay? To those who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. That applies to all of us. Now, I'm not sure that Jude sat down and wrote and thought, i got to make sure Champion Forest Baptist Church has this come November 2005. But I do believe that the letter itself was not written for any specific person or any specific one church, but was written to travel through the churches. It was a general letter that Jude wrote to travel through the churches. Now, one of the things I've been spending a lot of time reading lately, let's see, one of my trusty editions of the Apostolic Fathers. See, this is promo for next class. Okay? So, for example, I thought, you know, there is a letter from this fellow named Polycarp that you'll learn all about. In fact, I, I bet you 10% of you will cry the class we spend on Polycarp. Absolutely incredible, gentlemen. Absolutely incredible. I cried um, first time I ever read it. I cried again rereading it in the last few weeks. There is a, a book called uh, The Martyrdom of Polycarp, which explains how this man was martyred for God and for Christ. And it's, it's just the most touching thing that you could read. But anyway, um, before he got martyred, he wrote, Polycarp wrote a letter to the Philippian church. And this is, uh, this letter's probably written around 110, 120 AD. So figure about 25 years, 20, 25 years after Revelation, the last book in our Bible. And, and you'll see, he says here, we are sending to you the letters of Ignatius that were sent to us by him together with any others that we have in our possession, just as you requested. See the way the church would request letters that were important letters, and they'd send them back and forth? Um, here's another part of... Uh, this is actually out of the martyrdom of Polycarp. But when you've informed yourself about these things, you've read our letter, it says, send the letter on to the brothers who are farther away in order that they too may glorify the Lord who makes selection from among His own servants. You'll also find in these where they write about how they're gathering together the, the writings of Paul to make sure that the church has got those to read. And it's a fascinating study. But what you have is, is ultimately the church takes these letters and they pass them around. And so Jude is a letter that's, that's written for passing around. It's not addressed to any one particular congregation or church. Um, when was it written? Well, scholars tend to think it's somewhere around 65 to 80, which is the time second... Well, 65 is about when Second Peter would have been written. And Second Peter and Jude have a lot in common. So scholars, some scholars think Peter had Jude in front of him when he wrote Second Peter. Other scholars say, no, Jude had Second Peter in front of him. So depending on is where you date the letter. But somewhere around 65 to 80 uh, A.D. is when the letter was written. Why was it written? Or in, in theological terms, what's the occasion of the letter? The reason it was written, and it's interesting because Jude himself says, you know, I would get so juiced writing to you about your salvation. That would really thrill me. But it's more important that I write to you about the heresy problem. 
It's kind of like a preacher who might stand up and say, I really, I have this really good sermon that I wanted to bring. You know, if David Nasser this morning had said, I've got a great sermon on the glory of the Lord, but I think it's more important that I speak to you this morning about uh, uh, how shall the young secure their heart and keep their lives from sin, you know, storing up the word of God, Psalm 119. And so, you know, that's what he's doing. He says, I am writing this to confront heresy uh, the same type of heresy that's in Second Peter, and that's why the two have so much in common. He starts the letter with his greeting, and the greeting in this is mercy, peace, and love. It's a threefold greeting to be yours in, in abundance. Now that's a, a blessing, that, the greeting that Jude brings to us, because remember this letter's to us too, right? Okay, so who out there wants some mercy in abundance? Okay, I'm there. Who wants peace? in abundance, like a river. Who wants love in abundance? That's from God. And that's what we have from God. And that's where Jude starts his letter with that type of a greeting. And he says, you know, in essence, this from our Lord Jesus Christ, from God the Father to you. Now, as we chart through the letter, we see where the mercy, peace, and love unfolds. It unfolds with this key passage at the very beginning. In this passage, Jude, the brother of Jesus, tells the readers and tells you and me to contend once for all for the faith that was entrusted to the saints. To contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Um, in your lessons this morning, it's like on the bottom of page 2. I don't have a lesson. Can I borrow yours, Gary? Okay, bottom of page two. Um, I can do it with my hand. Okay, you see down here where it says, Jude then informs his readers that in spite of his eagerness to write to them about the salvation they all share, he was compelled to write about other matters instead. Jude felt he must write to urge the readers to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. This concern trumpets the fact that our faith, the Christian faith, is not some morphing, evolving, or changing faith. It's the same. It's been delivered once and for all. For everybody. There was a typo that I noticed this morning while I was doing the PowerPoint. I was looking at the lesson. I'd left the word not out. It said the Christian faith is some morphing, evolving, or changing faith. That's like a horrible typo. Okay? That's like um, failing to put the not in, thou shalt not commit adultery. You just don't put it out that way. Okay? And Philip, fortunately, made the change before the lessons got copied. Thank you, Philip. Um, because that's a real important difference. We don't have a faith that changes. When we do church history, we're going to see a very early problem in the church was the apostles all die. There's not New Testament scripture put together for the church. You don't have Jesus in the flesh. You don't have apostles in the flesh. And you don't have Scripture put together. So what do you do? What do you believe? 
How does the church handle this? When you got a dispute, where do you go for authority? What are you going to do? Well, there arises within the church a movement that we call the Gnostic movement, but it's a movement where people would come forward and say, I'm glad you're all here. I have secret knowledge about Christianity that nobody else has. See, it came to me through very special people that Jesus told it to. He didn't want the world to know it, not even all of the church. He just, this is, this is special. It's unique. It's really spiritual. And most people are cheese puffs, and they can't handle the spiritual. So this is just for those of us who have deep roots. But you seem to me to be people who have deep roots too. So I'm going to pass a collection plate for me. And while you're filling it up, I'm going to share with you some deep roots. And if you don't want to fill it up, then why don't you leave because you must not be spiritual enough to handle it. And you might be saying, but this is different than what Paul taught. <laughs> Bless his little cheese puff heart. He was nothing but a cheese puff. He didn't have the deep things that I'm going to teach you. And this is a huge problem in the early church. People who have secret mysteries that have been handed down through a secret chain. And Jude cuts it off quick. Jude says, no. The faith that we have is a faith that we contend for, that we'll fight for, that we'll stand for, that we'll give our lives for. And it's a faith that was once for all delivered to all of the saints. Not part of the saints, but the saints, period. And that's the way our faith is. I do not stand up here and like to hammer other people. And I don't stand up here and like to hammer other faiths. Because I don't want to be offensive to people. Um, there are a lot of good-hearted people in a lot of faiths. And I don't ever want to judge their hearts. And so if you're here in the faith that I'm about to slam, um, I don't mean it personally. Um, I've got a lot of good-hearted friends in this faith. But i got to tell you, the Mormon faith is totally out of line with Scripture. The Mormon faith is premised upon the idea that Joseph Smith up in Palmyra, New York in I think the 1830s or somewhere around there, in the 1800s somewhere, wakes up as an adolescent boy in the middle of his sleep and is told to go out to Hill Cumora where there are going to be these gold tablets he's going to dig up and the angel Moroni is going to help him translate because there needs to be a New Testament. There needs to be a New Testament. A new New Testament, Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob's been lobbying for us calling the New Testament just the Testament now because it's been around a couple thousand years. You know, Joseph Smith wants a new New Testament because there are some secrets about Christ and the church that have not been revealed. And that is heresy. Just as much as what Jude was writing about and, and the, the, the rudiments of what becomes a full-blown Gnostic heresy in the early church. There aren't secret little things. You know, a book that sells tremendously is called The Secret Books of the Bible. And it gets repackaged about every 15 years. You'll find a new edition of it. And, and it's basically 
some of these books out of the uh, pseudepigrapha of the Old Testament. These aren't secret books of the Bible. There aren't secret books of the Bible. There's not some mystery behind this that has to be revealed through some incredible super spirituality or some angel on a hill that's going to change the faith that we have now. In fact, the faith that we have now, if we had been asked to quote scripture this morning, we'd have gone to Galatians 1, it's either 7 and 8 or 8 and 9, but it's somewhere in there where Paul says, if anyone should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. Because there is no other faith. And the faith that we have is a faith that says, Jesus Christ was God made man. And he came and lived a life perfectly for you and me and then died a sinner's death even though he wasn't a sinner. Because he took our sins upon himself and he was resurrected physically by God, a physical resurrection that we will share one day by faith in Him. And as a seal of that, He sends His Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And that Orthodox Christian faith is what we contend for and what we fight for. It was once for all entrusted to the saints. We don't need any new secrets. Okay? Now, what were the heresies? Heresies aren't just bad because you believe something wrong. The problem with believing something wrong is ultimately when you filter it down in your life, it changes what you do. Let me say that again. One of the problems with believing something wrong is when you filter it down in your life, it changes what you do. If you don't believe the Bible is God's Word, you don't live by the Bible the way you would otherwise. You don't study the Bible the way you would otherwise. There are heresies. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ was God-made flesh, if instead you believe in the Gnostic heresy, which is, all right, that's supposed to be a body. Isn't that pretty bad? <laughs> Aha! It's bad on purpose. Because the Gnostics believed that the body was bad. So I got a bad picture of a body. I thought that would be a good way to show. The Gnostics believed that anything physical and material is bad. Did you know you're sitting on a bad bench? It'd be even worse if it, did, if it didn't have the cushion. But it's probably already bad like that. Everything physical. You can look next to you, unless it's your spouse, in which event I'd look the other way, and you say, you're bad. Because you see them. Anything you see is bad. The only thing good, the only thing good are things you don't see. Things that are invisible. Ideas. Knowledge. Uh, spiritual things that you lower your voice to talk about. Those are the only things that are good. Everything else is bad. And the problem with that view is it leads to a heresy. It changes the way you live. Hey, my body stinks. It's bad. It's evil. It's wicked. Might as well let it do whatever the heck it wants. I mean, it's already bad. You know, getting drunk ain't going to change it any. So let it go get drunk. Why should I be faithful to my wife? That's just my body. Spiritually. While my body is committing adultery spiritually, I'm, I'm in tune with the universe and my wife. See, this is the kind of gobbledygook that went along with the teaching. Oh, there was another side to the coin. The other side of the coin was the body is so bad and so evil, let's not indulge it at all. 
let's make sure we only eat liver and onions. Heaven forbid we eat anything tasty and give pleasure to this evil body. Married, doesn't matter. Don't have any type of intimate relations with your spouse because that's pleasurable and you want to give absolutely no pleasure to this evil body. It took those different turns, but those are the turns it took. And Jude's especially concerned with the license for immorality. He's also concerned because he says this is a denial of Jesus as Lord. It denies uh, if the body's bad, then how did Jesus come in a body? It's a denial not only of Him in in how He came, but when you live as if sin is irrelevant, then you're denying the Lord Jesus Christ and His death. Because if He really died for your sin, it's not irrelevant. It's something that's very sensitive. So, he says, this license to sin mentality, it diminishes both the person and the work of Christ. Jude says, let me give you some examples. Okay? Example one, Egypt. Do you all remember this scene? I wish I could get video clips out of the Ten Commandments movie. I haven't figured out how to do that yet, but that's the Egypt story I know and love, and it's the one that we need, okay? Instead, I'm having to go to like these artists who painted 500 years ago to find these paintings, and Charlton Heston's not even in this thing, but you see, (laughs) there's the golden calf. Okay, and the people are reveling and partying all around it, and they're having their little, you know, shindig celebration, which they call worship of the golden calf because Moses has been up in the mountain for too long. And while they're doing all of that, God comes down and he, and, or Moses comes down, he throws the tablets down, and ultimately God judges the people who came out of Egypt very harshly. When they don't have enough faith to go into the promised land, he lets them die in the wilderness. There are a number of problems they have. Okay? And here's what Jude say. He says, they all got called out of Egypt. But don't think for a minute God didn't pay attention to what they believed and how they lived. Because He did. And we need to as well. He says not only that, but think about all of the fallen angels who are angels in God's glory but they don't attribute glory to God and they don't maintain their glory for God and instead they opt for their own agenda and their fallen angels. He says not only that, I'll give you another example. How about Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah gets wiped out because of its sin and immorality. Don't think for a minute that immorality is irrelevant to God. And he says, in the same way, these anything goes dreamers, these people who say, hey, you do whatever you want because your body's already evil. Hey, you got a free license to sin. It doesn't matter what you do. God's forgiven you anyway. You're going to heaven. It doesn't matter if you lie. It doesn't matter if you cheat. It's just an income tax. It doesn't matter if you pilfer something from work. They got lots of it. It doesn't matter if you cheat on your spouse. You're out of town. It doesn't matter if you're addicted to something on your computer. Because no one's in the room. It doesn't matter if you want something so bad that it just eats inside you. Because that's inside you. You don't need to worry about being greedy. You don't need to worry about envy. You're saved. What's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal. 
And that's what Jude says. He says, these dreamers pollute their own bodies. They reject authority. They slander celestial beings. And then he goes to a really good one that I'm sure you've just got fresh on your tongue. Even the archangel Michael, when he's disputing with the devil, doesn't bear to bring a slanderous accusation against him. You're saying, what? We did biblical literacy. Lanier didn't cover that one. Well, it isn't in the Bible. It's in a book uh, uh, that we don't have a full copy of now that we've got other people who've written about it. It's called The Assumption of Moses. And it was current. In fact, it was written probably during the lifetime of Christ and and His ministry. But it was a well-read book of the times. It'd be like one of us using a C.S. Lewis book on the Chronicles of Narnia for a class illustration. And for me to say, hey, Aslan the lion comes... You know, or, or remember, I think it's the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe where it starts out and it says, imagine a place where it's always winter, but never Christmas. I love that line. You know, or to take a line like that out and use it, that's what he's doing. He's taken a, a book that, that everyone's fairly familiar with, and the way that book taught the, the death of Moses... Moses dies, but Moses isn't allowed to go into the promised land, right? We know that from the Bible. And so the question becomes, who's going to bury Moses? Because it's important to bury. So God sends Michael down to bury Moses. Michael the archangel goes to bury Moses, but in the process, the devil's there, and the devil says, he's mine. He's mine because he's uh, material, and I'm lord of the material world now since it's fallen. And he's also mine because he, like uh, God, you know, he committed murder back there in Egypt. And I get the murderers. And Michael rebukes Satan. But even Michael doesn't rebuke him on his own authority. He rebukes him by the Lord. says, the Lord rebuke you. Moses belongs to God and I'm here and I'm going to take care of Moses, his body. And so this illustration is borrowed by Jude to make the point that our position is not to be slanderous of people. Our position, even, even Michael didn't slander Satan. Our position is to stand for the faith and the gospel. The reason Jude, don't lose me here, the reason Jude makes this point is these dreamers who would stand up there and say anything goes would say, oh, you got that letter from Jude? Look, he didn't even stick by his, he didn't even know his brother was God when his brother was on earth. Don't buy that letter. And so these guys would slander Jude and other Christians. And so Jude's saying, this is not good behavior you ought to be following. He says, these people have taken the way of Cain, who out of jealousy and greed killed his brother. He says, let me give you another example. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's era. Balaam was going to take money to curse Israel because he just wanted the bucks. He says, they've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Korah was the one who challenged the authority of Moses and said, why can't all of us have this, all of us Levites at least, have this priestly authority? How come just you? And Moses says, oh, you want to try? Okay, it's not like I made the rule. Get 250 of you and bring your incense on down tomorrow and we'll see whose incense the Lord takes. And those 250 got zapped and the earth opens up and swallows a whole bunch more of them because this was all about God. And so the point Jude is making here is we don't set the agenda. We don't decide what we do. We don't act out of greed and we don't act out of pecuniary interest, money. We live based upon the faith that's already been entrusted to us that says Jesus Christ died for our sins and that's a serious matter and we take it seriously and we want to be one with Him. 
He says, these other guys, these men are blemishes at the love feast. That's the lunch they'd have that would often accompany the Lord's Supper on Sunday. These men are blemishes. They're like shepherds who don't feed the sheep. They only feed themselves. They're like clouds that don't have any, any rain in them that are just being blown along when you need the rain. They're like trees that in the autumn have been uprooted and fallen over and are dead. They're absolutely useless. They don't bear any fruit. Only thing you can do with them is burn them. That's all they're useful for is the fire. They're, they're like waves of the ocean that churns up garbage. Have you ever been down to Galveston? Have you noticed all the garbage on the beach? It comes from the waves. It churns it up. It'll find it. You got garbage in the sea? It'll come on the shore by the waves. That's what these guys are doing. They're just churning up garbage. They're like shooting stars that go into blackness forever. I want to show you all this shooting star I saw the other night. No, can't do it. It's not up there anymore. It's gone. And that's the way these guys are. They will flame out. And, and he says, you know, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. Now you're probably saying, what? We didn't learn about that in biblical literacy. Well, again, this is one of the things that got Jude questioned as far as whether or not it should be in the Bible. The book of Enoch is a book that was written um, uh, uh, probably within a hundred years of Jude's writings. And in the book of Enoch, this guy says that he was basically in the desert and Enoch comes to him and he has a, a vision of sorts. But in the process of this vision, it says, And behold, he cometh with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's quoted basically word for word by Jude um, here. The point that Jude's making is not that that's in the Old Testament because it's not. In fact, Jude says this is Enoch, the seventh from Adam, which is the way Enoch identifies himself in this book. So he's in essence saying, you know, what we would say, the book of the secrets of Enoch, because that's what we call it now. He calls it the other. But he says this is the way the Lord is. The Lord is coming in judgment on these people. And He is. Because it's not God's faith that's being taught. So, he says, remember what the apostles told you. Because that's our faith. And that's what we hold on to. Now Jude gives points for home, and after the points for home, he gives a closing prayer. So we're going to go to him for the points for home and the closing prayer. Points for home. He says, build yourselves up in faith. Okay? Build yourselves up in faith. He says, keep yourselves... Y'all are flipping to the points for home... I changed this up for the PowerPoint from what you have in your text. That comes from me writing, oh, it's not up there anyway? Thanks. You can shout it. You don't have to use sign language. Um, okay, points for home. Yeah, these aren't in the lesson. This called, that's called the lesson was written days before this. This was written this morning, so it's fresh in my brain while I teach. Build yourselves up in faith. This is from Jude itself. Faith is not something that you just get to become a Christian. It's something that you grow in. I'll tell you one of the main reasons to go to church, God will grow you in your faith when you worship Him. When you draw near to the throne room of God, you grow in your faith. 
a reason to do Bible study, not just to store the Word up in our hearts, which is a valid reason that David talked about from Psalm 119, but you spend time in the Word and you will grow in your faith. That's true, isn't it? A lot of you uh, know that's true. If you don't, I can tell you there was a time in my life where I was really starting to question and doubt some beliefs, some Christian beliefs. And I remember sitting down and I had a sermon on this point. I may have been Charles that taught it. I don't know who. Um, but someone said that to me. And I thought, you know, my faith is not what it used to be. I don't feel as confident. I've got these doubts. Maybe I'll try that. I'll spend more time in Scripture. I'll get back into that daily devotional. It's something I don't come down hard on my children about. But, you know, last night, I, Gracie went to the grocery store with me. I just gently asked. So like, how's the quiet time stuff coming? Do you, do you find it hard to have time for that with everything you've got going on? Because I'll bet I would. And yet, man, that's so important. Just nice little gentle things like that. I'd give you the same prodding. You'll build yourself up in your faith when you spend time with your God in worship, in His Word, in fellowship. Okay? Keep yourselves in God's love. You don't need to get out on limbs. You need to walk right down in the middle of who God is and how He cares about you. And that's what your life needs to be about. That's how people need to see you. People need to know you're a Christian because they can tell by the way you relate to people. It's not because you vote for one political party or another or you stand up at rallies. It's because you care with your heart about what happens in people and what's right and wrong. Be merciful to those who doubt. Don't hit them with a sledgehammer. Be merciful. This is from Jude. And then he has this doxology, which is a passage that I love. And so this is, is our closing prayer. I send you with this to him, to God, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault, not because you're good enough, but because he's taken your fault away who's able to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, I left out the R, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's grace.